Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Episode 26 already. Thanks so much for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Now, before I tell you about what we're going to be doing on this edition of the podcast, I have an announcement to make. On July 20th, which is a Thursday night in a small theater in North Hollywood, California, I am going to be having a reading of a failed pilot that my partner David Isaacs and I wrote for Fox back in 2002, 2003. We're going to record it and we're going to play it back as an episode of this podcast. But I want you to come and actually be there for it. I have a few seats reserved. So what I'm going to do is give you an email address. And if you are in North Hollywood and if you are interested in coming, no more than two per person, you just write me a note at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Once again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And depending upon how many people send in requests... I'll either have a lottery or maybe only two people do it. But again, it is July 20th at 7 o'clock at night in North Hollywood, California. It is a pilot that was actually filmed and didn't go, but we have a better cast and I think it's going to have a better shot. Anyway, uh, you'll either have a chance to see it on the 20th or hear it sometime in August on the podcast. Okay, what are we going to do today? Well, I'm going to talk a lot about stand-up comedy, why I never became a stand-up comic, and I'm going to introduce you to a comedy writer, Tom Caltabiano. Tom was a stand-up comic in New York and also the best friend of Ray Romano. And he came out along with Ray. In fact, they were roommates when Everybody Loves Raymond started. And Tom became a writer on the show and stayed with the show for the entire run. And there was a point where he and Kevin James and Ray Romano were rooming together. Boy, that's a sitcom in and of itself. So we're going to talk a lot about Everybody Loves Raymond, the transition between stand-up comedy and comedy writing and... I'm also going to share uh, a rather embarrassing story about when I directed Everybody Loves Raymond. So again, a lot going on. Let's get it going. Hollywood and the Vine. Coming up in a few minutes, my talk with Tom Caltabiano. But first, I want to give a personal story of working on Everybody Loves Raymond. Now, this is kind of an embarrassing story, and I have to admit, I have never told anybody this story before. 
I have not told Phil Rosenthal, certainly. I've not told the writers. I've not told my wife, even. This is a story that you are hearing for the first time. Okay, so I'm a new director on the show. And it's always very difficult because, like I said at one point, you're kind of like a substitute teacher. I mean, the cast and the crew, they've all worked together for years. And suddenly you come on the scene and it's like, who the fuck is this guy? So I try to endear myself to the cast and the crew by coming early maybe a day or two before my show goes into production. In some cases, I'll go to a filming, and that was the case with Everybody Loves Raymond. My show was supposed to start on a Wednesday, but that Tuesday night, I went to the filming of the previous episode, and I walked around and introduced myself to the camera operators and the first AD and the editor, etc., etc., and then I went back to meet the cast. Now, this is something that I had done before, with other casts the first time that I'd met them, and it always resulted in a big laugh. So I figured, this is money. I went back to the makeup room, and there was the cast of Everybody Loves Raymond, and I introduced myself and shook everybody's hand, and I said, uh, ah, you know, I love doing multi-camera show. I mean, it is just so much easier than when I directed The English Patient. Now, usually, again, when I say this, it gets a big laugh. And in this case, the cast just looked at me, and one of them, and I won't say who, said, really, you directed The English Patient? I love that movie. And then everyone else kind of chimed in like, yeah, well, that that was a great movie. Congratulations. And now I'm thinking, oh, my God, (laughs) what do I do? Because if I cop to the fact that, no, no, that was just a, a joke, well, then they're all going to feel like complete idiots, which, by the way, they were. But if I don't, then they're going to go off and think that the freelance director doing a couple of episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond also was the director of the motion picture, The English Patient. Okay, what did I do? I took the coward's way. I decided not to say anything. And hopefully... They all went home and they're driving and thinking to themselves, wait a minute, how could that skeezix be the director of English Patient? And then they went and Googled and found out that, in fact, I, of course, did not direct the English Patient. But they never said anything to me about it. And we got along just fine. But it was really kind of an embarrassing way to begin a relationship with the cast. How could they possibly think that I directed the English patient? My God. Tom Caltabiano is a stand-up comic and also a writer and also a very good friend of Ray Romano's. Recently, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Tom, and here's that conversation. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. You were a stand-up comic, and at one time, you were rooming with Ray Romano and Kevin James... And they both got shows. What <laughs> Why happened, didn't I Tom? Get, oh yeah. man, this is yeah a hurtful <laughs> thing right up front. I never. You know what? You know what's funny? Ken? Did you want Pe- a show? No, not really. Have you known anybody when they're not famous to the point where they become famous? Not really. Okay. No. I mean, Conan O'Brien was a writer in the Simpsons room, right? Before he became Conan O'Brien, and I knew him back then. But no, it's not somebody who was just like a you know a schmuck on the street, right? And now they're famous, right? 
I'm not saying Ray was a schmuck, but we were very good friends from stand-up days. He's Ray to me, and I've known him for so long. You know, right, he's just Ray. He's a guy. Right. He's a guy that I knew. Right. And then I lived through the whole process of becoming famous, and he even said it's weird because people are treating me differently. Not like, oh, I'm signing autographs, but you start losing your sure. compass when yeah. people are doing that. So. I didn't sit there and go, I want a TV show. And now Ray has one and Kevin has one because you're friends that are struggling. Ray and I had zero money whenever it was Raymond started. Like we would be doing gigs in Washington, D.C. And we'd have to drive down. I can tell you exactly what it was. The OJ trial, when they announced the verdict. Okay, so that's 1995. Right. Yeah. So Ray and I are at his house in Queens. We wait for the verdict to be announced. We get in the car in Queens. Get we, in your Bronco and there you go. <laughs> I wish we would have. No, that was actually a slow chase. We race down to the improv to do the show that night. And we're going to be at the improv in Washington, D.C. for a week. You know, we're, we're driving and Ray going, uh, my wife wants to make sure you split the $8 tolls with me. So we've known each other from crazy poor through now. Friends succeeding always is, and I would never understood the opposite. Yeah, see, I had a circle of friends... Same thing, a circle of friends of would-be comedy writers. And we all eventually made it, and we were all very happy for each other. And I never felt like I was in competition with any of them because I figured, okay, I'm going to be on a show one year, and they're going to have a development deal. Or they're going to be on a show, and I'm going to have a development deal. Or I'll do a script for them, or I'll have a pilot, and they'll come in and help me rewrite. So like I said, there was kind of a, a core group of friends And as we navigated our way through the industry, we always had each other's backs. And I guess that's the way it is with you and Ray and Kevin. Yeah. You know, I wasn't really good friends with Kevin. Like, Kevin, what what happened is, you know, I started doing stand-up in New York. And Ray's softball team called Nemo's needed a softball player. So I'm like, oh, I'm a good softball player. And Ray is just Ray. He's just a guy. You don't have to be funny. You just have to be able to hit a curve. (laughs) Yes. If they could throw a curve in that league. Well, but what ended up happening was we got along well. I played left field. I could hit with power. And... I was very clean on stage. And so all of a sudden, you know, after working on various gigs, because you would see, every, you know, you would see John Stewart and Brett Butler and everybody was just there being a stand-up. Sure. No, nobody was famous. Right. Louis C.K. And so Ray one day said, hey, listen, do you want to open for me on, you know, wh- whatever the gig was? Mm-hmm. Because he knew I was clean. He knew I was normal. I didn't do drugs. I didn't, you know, so, and there's a lot more criteria than just is that person funny, you right. know? And I would also, I was single and he was married. So I would go on stage and I wouldn't step on any of his marriage material. And so we started working together a lot. And you didn't do stand-up ever, Ken, No, right? I never did stand-up. Okay. That's the one area of comedy that I've really had no desire to do. And the sense I get is that a lot of the stand-up comics, with all due respect, but boy, they have issues. If, if you take the baseline that all human beings are flawed, right? Right. Stand-ups very often are really flawed. Yeah, and, they're at the head of the curve. Yeah, they, yeah. they beat out a lot of other competitors. I was listening to Mark Maron's podcast, who I'm not friends with Mark. I know him you know, enough to talk to him if I see him. But I was hearing all these angry 
not from Mark necessarily only, but just, and he's very forthright about it, but just like, you know, I had an issue with you or this and all these battles going on. And I think, boy, I wasn't aware of any of this. I was just happy doing <laughs> stuff. You know what I mean? Doing stand up. I didn't start doing stand up because I'm going to be on a TV show. You know what I mean? Like, that wasn't but a my lot thought. of comics do, or at least they did. When Freddie Prince got discovered at the comedy store and went on to do Chico and the Man, I think that kind of set the bar for everybody. The Freddie Prinze thing, that launched the, I'm going to get into stand-up to get a show. And that's not, you know, Ray did stand-up to do Mm stand-up. And yes, did he have the thought, wow, I'm 38 now, I wonder if there's another step for me, or I'll just do stand-up the rest of my life. The first year of Everett's Raymond... Ray was moving out to work on the show, and he had a family in New York. So he said to me, Tom, do you want to move out, and I'll see if I can get you on the show. We'll share an apartment. Kevin had a development deal, I think, and then he moved out, and Ray said, just stay at our apartment. And so I have actually a photo that Ray held up on Letterman. Ray is sound asleep looking at the TV, but he's sound asleep on his back with the remote on his chest, and Kevin has no shirt on, is sleeping on his side on the pull-out couch mattress which he has pulled off and is laying <laughs> on the floor, and it looks like the glamour of Hollywood. Yes, yes, and yeah. Ray held it up a letter and said, Dave, that is one hour of prime time right there. So, <laughs> so you joined Everybody Loves Raymond as a writer, but you came in not because you had written a great spec script or not because you had been on staff of Coach and had worked with Phil Rosenthal. You came in because you were friends with Ray. Now, you wound up doing a great job and staying with the show the entire run, but I guess early on, it must have been kind of tough for you because you were sort of considered Ray's guy. Yeah. The origin is he does Letterman. He gets a development deal. They have to find writers. They go to Hollywood. They interview a bunch of writers. They pick ultimately Phil Rosenthal. Okay, good pick. Phil, yeah, Phil writes the pilot. We're driving back from the Improv. Ray has the first draft that Phil sent, and then maybe the next day Ray calls me and he goes, "Hey, can you type?" And so I said, yeah, I can type. So <laughs> you can type and you can play left field. Yeah, yes. Uh, and hit for power. <laughs> and by hit the way. for power. Yeah, yeah. So basically, Ray came to my house. We start putting into kind of Ray's voice. By the way, we know nothing about the do's and don'ts of helping on a pilot. And so I'll tell you was Phil even aware that you were doing this? No. Phil's script was really a brilliant script. And we end up going to meet with a guy before Phil's going to meet Ray in New York. And we meet with a guy named Stu Smiley, who if you ever see the credits, he's an executive producer. Mm-hmm. And he was pivotal in the early introduction of Worldwide Pants. like a manager or no, somebody? No, he worked for HBO Independent Productions. Okay, gotcha. So Ray and I meet him at like a deli in New York before Ray's going to go meet with Phil without me. I'm nothing at this point. Right. And so <laughs> we hand... Uh, Stu, we go, okay, hey, we made this, you know, we, we added some Ray stuff. He goes, you can't do that. We're like, well, why? And he's like, because you can write handwritten notes in the margins or something. And we're like, well, we already did the work of typing. Like, why would we handwrite things? And so what we didn't understand is when someone writes the pilot, like, that's the pilot. 
right? There is yes. no. You're, yes. you're, 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 That's why I asked whether or not Phil knew about this. Right. So, and we didn't change any structure. Again, this is two guys who just were funny and knew right. funny, and that's it. And what ultimately happened on the show is what we did that pass is for the entire series, Ray would, we would call it Rayified. When it wasn't a Ray script, he still was involved in every single aspect of making the show, including doing a pass where he put some stuff more in his language. And that's all we had done, right. not knowing anything was a terrible thing. Right. Well, you just didn't know. Well, no one told it. Yeah, Yeah, by the way, Ken, one of the reasons I think your writer's blog is so good is you just don't know. And there's nobody you can go, if I knew you back then, I'd be like, Ken, hey, we're going to, and you would go, hold on, Tom, let me save you some (laughs) suffering. Don't do that. And you would have explained to me why. But Ray and I were like, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you a question. Why do you think Raymond was so successful? I would say, as you know, because you were there, it was so based on real life stories and was relatable. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look back through shows, and I remember when I was helping out my friend who wrote the Creative Arts Emmys and 30 Rock was on, I hadn't watched a lot of TV at this point, And he gives me an episode of 30 Rock and I'm like, mm, this is the most jokes per pe-. Like these guys are delivering on comedy. Mm-hmm. But it's tough to relate to the characters. And so... If you break down the pages, many more laughs, I would say, in 30 Rock than and Everybody Loves Raymond. Right. But you're really invested in the characters on Everybody Loves Raymond because they all come from, you know, Phil and Ray were very much about real-life stories and kept it grounded. And we felt like if we pulled the comedy out, you'd still have a very good show. That was really impressed upon us by Phil, who's, you know, the pilot had a thing that happened to him in real life, which was the Fruit of the Month Club. You know, it's very much Ray's real life. As we would say, the shittier our lives are, the better the comedy is, right? So we would come oh, into sure. the, yeah, we'd yeah. come into the writer's room and Phil's would be like, oh, tell me what happened. And sometimes you'd come in really not thinking, I'm trying to do a story. You'd be like, here's what happened. You weren't married, but a lot of the other writers were. Did they get in trouble with their wives? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. I would say Phil took the brunt and Ray mostly because it's their show. Right. Final question. What is your writing process like? I always ask writers this. For us on Raymond, for example, we spent so much time on the outline working on the beats of the story. Right. You, you could spend two months working on the outline to get it right, and we never threw out a script. So for me, it's... If you can put out five pages a day, quality pages. I mean, right. you could write 20 pages. So so you go kind of methodical because I know there's some writers that will write a vomit draft. They'll write a draft in a day. I'm very similar to you in that I kind of go at a nice steady pace and move through the script. And I always like to have allotted enough time so that I can go back and I can make changes if need be. There's some writers who like to wait to the last minute and they write over the last 48 hours before the script is due. That drives me nuts. The trap is you want to write funny dialogue. Like, right. I, I want to see a script. I wrote right. a script. And the, that's the fun part. The yes, story part's the hard part. The hard part, part yes. Yeah. So sitting there, you have to struggle with the story because what happens is you're wasting so much time writing this funny two pages of dialogue. Oh, guess what? That, that scene goes away. You would still write go through the whole process, and then Phil would come back from editing and go, I lost the whole teaser. You're like, how did you lose a whole teaser? Yeah, no, you're right on board with the story right away. And it's amazing how you can still cut 
cut, 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 edit. And so if you're just writing a draft and you don't have the story worked out, you get invested in these, but that's such a great joke on page seven. It's like, okay, but nobody cares about the story because it's this meandering right. piece of, you know, whatever. When you're writing, Ken, are you like, I write early in the morning till whatever, or you're just like, nah, there's I write no morning, noon. I mean, that's one thing about television writing, as you know. Part of what you're being paid for is the ability to write on demand. Right. You know? The train and leaves the station it, every Monday. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you may have a cold or you may have had a fight with your significant other, but you got to get that scene done by noon. Yeah. So, no, I write in the morning, I write at night. I prefer to write at night, late at night, because it's quiet. Yeah. But otherwise, no. Nah. I don't care. Ray and I used to say, like, the difference between, and this is why sometimes comedy is taken for granted in that almost everybody says something funny at some point in their life. You know, sometimes it's four years in between. Uh And if you're a professional, (laughs) it's very often. It's kind of like, you know, you put a monkey in front of a typewriter and eventually they're going to type a word. A word, yes. Yes. But I think that the the thing with comedy is people look at it and go, I'm funny. I kill the people. And I'm not saying not everybody can be funny, but it's that funny. Like Ken can sit down and write out a professional funny. Professional funny all the time, on demand. You feel terrible and you're still putting it out. And I don't know how much you got. I was going to ask you about Cheers because I've worked on single cam real ones. You don't get that live audience feedback. It's in a thing. You would see the actors responding when they are saying their lines, and they got their timing. Single camera, like MASH, you're in a vacuum. Yeah, you really are. And the thing that I like about multi-camera shows is, like I always say, you're held accountable. You know, the jokes better be funny because you have 200 strangers are you going to be able to make them laugh? Right. As opposed to a single camera show where if it makes you laugh and the other three people who are sitting at the editing bay watching it going, yeah, okay, that's good enough. That's great. Yeah. You're uh, America. You're yeah. ju- your three people are judging for all of America. Right. By the way, Phil used to do a great thing in the writer's room. If you wrote a draft and then you're going through line by line or page by page and suddenly right. nothing on page one, nothing on page two, nothing on page three. I'm talking about Phil scripts now. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> yeah. Phil, no yeah. notes, no notes. But a lot of times, if it's your script, Phil would go, do you love this joke? Because we could try and do better, whatever. And if you argued enough, he'd say, okay, I'll tell you what. We'll let it live to the table read. There's going to be 40 people at the table read where you read the script from beginning to end on stage. Right. If it gets a laugh, great. If it doesn't get a laugh, I'm staring you down going, are you happy? Because we wanted to cut this terrible joke (laughs) and you fought for this piece of shit. But you can be vindicated by laughter, which is... The beauty of comedy. That's versus- what we used to say. Uh, are you willing to take out comedy insurance on this <laughs> joke? <laughs> well, it's the beauty between comedy and drama when you're doing a table read because there is no debate in comedy. There's laughs or no laughs. Right. In drama, we could – no, Ken, I'm telling you, this scene works and whatever. As opposed to comedy, you go, Tom, the absence of laughter tells me that you stink. Stop, stop, <laughs> stop talking. You know what I mean? And so right. it's, they'll cry at this. Yes. They will. God damn it, they'll okay. cry at this. I guess, yeah, I guess so. And if they don't, we'll put in some Gladys Knight and the Pips mood record, and then they'll <laughs> cry. But on the, uh, I gotta, have to ask you this, on the cheers in your writer's room, you know, was everything done in the room as opposed to like Seinfeld where Larry and Jerry would go off? No, it was all done in the room. Okay. It was but, all done in the room. But you and had it, especially it, the first five, six years when Glenn and Les were there, it all went through Glenn and Les. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, in the same way that it went through Phil. 
on on everyone's raymond we were tweaking right up until showtime tweaking right. tweaking yeah first take didn't get the big laugh oh I get just, an alternate. Yes, yeah. get an alternate mm-hmm. take. Don't you, this isn't story stuff, but this is every single thing until the last moment trying to make a product better. It's very hard to do that when you're rushing, when it's 4 a.m. Right. You know, because you, that one five-page scene, you wouldn't mind living with that for two days, going mm-hmm. over it, saying it out loud, getting into the character's head, all this, you know, all these things. And that's the difference between good and great is not that much. And you need that luxury of time. Did you guys do many uh, slamming a, a script in one night? Generally, during the course of a year, there was always one, maybe two scripts that were just kind of snake bit. And there were times when we would throw out a script at five in the afternoon and have a new script at the table at six o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah. And when we would go through and proof those scripts, we had no idea whether or not we had solved the problem or we just made a lateral move and you would send it down to the stage and generally one of two things would happen. You would come in blurry-eyed the next day and there would be a call from the stage, can you guys come down here? And you knew, uh, okay, you had big problems. Or it worked like a charm and everyone thought you pulled the world's greatest magic act. And, and I got to tell you, at 6 o'clock in the morning, I had no, no idea which was which. Well, Tom, this has been great. Thanks. I'll have you back. Yeah, we'll have to continue. We, we didn't even get through one-tenth of their That's the right. stories that we... We'll have you back. Yeah. Okay. Thanks right. very much. got a question for you. Do you love wine? Of course you do. Anyway, I have got the perfect wine club for you. It's called Wink and it is W-I-N-C. Wink is a revolutionary wine club that delivers high quality wine straight to your door. Now here's what they do. They partner with innovative winemakers from all over the world to produce a wide variety of small lot handcrafted wines for the members. With Wink, you have the freedom to pick and choose the type of wines and the number of bottles that you receive each month. And the best part is they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee on every single bottle. Start drinking personalized wine selections today. Try Wink and I have a special introductory offer for you. You can get $22 off of your first order when you go to wink.com slash Hollywood. Again, that's W-I-N-C. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping, so Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So uh, take something off of that to-do list. Come on, just go to your uh, computer. Type in wink.com slash Hollywood and get $22 off your very first order right now. Hollywood and the Vine. Like I said, I have never personally had the desire to be a stand-up comic, but a thought just occurred to me. It might be kind of a fun experiment to do an open mic night. I have never done anything like that before. So I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to explore it, see how much material you have to come up with, and then maybe one night try it, go to an open mic and record it and do it for the podcast. And, oh, my God, it might just be be terrible. I mean, you may just be hearing crickets. Uh, It may be the absolute death of me. But it's something kind of fun to do, so stay tuned. That may occur in the near future. 
I did make some money very early in my career writing for comedians, notably Joan Rivers. And the thing with Joan Rivers is she paid you $5 for every joke you submitted that she actually used. So I would write her 50 jokes and I would get $15. And after a while, it's like, no, this is an awful lot of work for not a lot of cash. And so I dropped that. And then I had a friend who was working on a stand-up act and I helped shape that act with her and come up with material for her and watched her as she died with my jokes. And um, we were no longer friends. I I wonder why. I I thought the jokes were funny and she's no longer in the business. So, hey, maybe it was her and not me. Anyway, there is a series on Showtime called I'm Dying Up Here. Have you seen this thing? It's terrible. It is very loosely based on a book by the same name, I'm Dying Up Here. And that book was about the comedy store era in the mid-70s. And the TV series is fictional. I mean, in the book, they talk about Richard Lewis and David Letterman and Jay Leno and Elaine Boozler and all the real comics. But everything is fictionalized in the TV version. And like I said, the TV version is just terrible. The book itself was pretty good and actually pretty accurate. And the book version of what it was like at the comedy store is very different from the TV version. And I happen to know because I was living in West Hollywood at the time in 1975, and I used to hang out at the comedy store. And back in those days, you could just go to the comedy store at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night and buy a drink for a few bucks and sit at the bar and just watch all of the comedians. And of course, as they came off, you know, they sort of circulated around the bar area and you talk to them and get to meet them and everything. And every so often, you know, something like unannounced Richard Pryor comes in and wants to try out material. And he did that one night and I swear it was the funniest 45 minutes of my life. I was actually glad. I was relieved when he got off the stage because my sides hurt so much. That's how funny. I've never seen anybody as funny as Richard Pryor doing that impromptu 45-minute set, just totally unannounced. But that's the thing. You know, back in 1975, 1976, you just go to the comedy store and hang out. And there's Robin Williams and David Letterman was there all the time, Jay Leno, etc. And, you know, you just kind of hung around with those guys. And the thing that I sensed from just chatting with them was that, yeah, they were in competition with each other. And yeah, it was all about getting on The Tonight Show. And if you got on The Tonight Show, if Johnny loved you, he invited you to go to the couch. And I mean, that was like, oh my God, you go to the couch on The Tonight Show and the next thing that happens is you're Freddie Prince and you have your own TV series. But if you watch the TV version, it's just a an ugly, competitive, horrible, depressing world. And like I said, yeah, the competition is there, but Jesus Christ, this is like a nightmare. And it was not like that at all. The other thing I don't understand about a television show that's about comics is why it can't be a comedy. (laughs) Why? It has to be so dark and so depressing. And of course, the look of it too was so ridiculous. It's like every outtake from Boogie Nights got in this TV series. 
And just like uh, last year's vinyl, which was a Martin Scorsese project that was on one of these premium cable channels, you know, it was also about the 70s and also everybody had the afros and the leather jackets and the leisure suits. And it just was like ridiculous. Everybody had mustaches, even the girls and... Oh, man. And the sexual revolution. Everybody was sleeping with everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wish it were like that. But like I said, there was an awful lot of fun and it was a joyous period hanging out at the comedy store in the 1970s. And there were a lot of really great people that came from that era that influenced each other And it was very inspiring. It wasn't that depressing. It was not inspiring enough for me to actually want to do it myself. But still, it was really fun to be a part of. And like I said, okay, I may bite the bullet and try to come up with five or six minutes worth of material. And I still have some friends who are stand-up comics. So I'll explore just how you do that. And hopefully I'll sign up for an open mic night. And I promise, if I do, No matter how badly I bomb, I will play it on this podcast. I'm going to regret this, I know. Hollywood and Levine continues right after this. Okay, that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Once again, if you are interested in being in the studio audience and attending the reading of the pilot that we are going to do on July 20th at 7 o'clock in North Hollywood, drop me an email, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. You can follow me on Instagram. Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, and you can follow me at Twitter at Ken Levine. We will see you again next week. Thanks again so much for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.